And now, after a hiatus of two and a half years, because the host accidentally got himself a real job, it's the return of Perfect Night In. Welcome to another episode of Perfect Night In. I'm your host, Neil Perryman, and today's special guest is the writer Gabby Hutchinson-Crouch. Gabby has written for Radio 4's The News Quiz, The Now Show, Dead Ringers, and BBC's Horrible Histories. She's also written a series of grown-up fairy tales called The Darkwood Series, and her latest novel, Wish You Weren't Here, is out now from Farago. You can follow Gabby on Twitter at Scriblet, and links to all her goodies can be found in the show notes. Okay, let's go and meet her, shall we? Hello, Gabby. Hello there. <laughs> thank you so much for agreeing to share your perfect night in with us. Oh, well, thank you for asking me to agree to share my perfect night in with you. <laughs> Before we begin, is there a perfect place that this perfect night in is taking place? Can you describe your environment? Oh, God, I'm so lame at home <laughs> because if I were to go anywhere else, I'd constantly be worried about getting home again. So literally at home, it would probably be at home, but but when the kids are on sleepovers the cat's coming so i don't have to worry about her i might have had to take away so i don't have to worry about washing up so in my house which is which is quite a nice little house so sit back and relax at six o'clock and we're going to introduce your first program now before we start i'd just like to say that all the programs that you've chosen apart from this one don't have any theme music as such they're either very very short or have no theme music at all so we're going to luxuriate in the opening music to this program final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. So your first choice, uh, Gabby, is uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, and it's not an episode that I would have expected anyone to pick. I was expecting something like, I don't know, Yesterday's Enterprise or Chain of Command, but you've picked one that I don't think I've ever seen since the first time it was transmitted, and it's The Offspring. Why have you chosen this? It's my favourite one. Oh, that, right, so my favourite character's data. I mean, <laughs> if, if this is my favourite episode, you know, that would be... Because it's just about data, really. And I love it because it's... It's so small and so personal, and I really like it when TNG does that. TNG was my favourite show as a kid, and it wasn't even so much like the space adventures. I wasn't, you know, those were fine, but I really wanted to to belong, and it felt like a family. It really felt like a family, and I wanted to sort of be a part of that family. They felt so accepting and so loving, and they were so disparate and so diverse. It, it felt like they all really loved each other. And I think it helps that the cast clearly love each other. So I wanted to be, as a kid who like was kind of a nerd and didn't fit in very well, I felt like this could be the place where I, I could fit in. I could fit in with this family of weirdos. And The Offspring is just the episode that it feels the most family-like because it is such a a small episode and such a personal episode. There's no space battles in it at all. There's no space exploration in it. There's no A-plot. It's like, often in TNG, you'll have like an A-plot where there's like a planet that's about to explode or the planet of the sexy ladies or something like that. And then there'll be a B-plot. Worf having shenanigans. (laughs) Troy wants to talk to Riker about her feelings or whatever. That'll be the B-plot. And it's, it's all personal let's talk about our feelings b plot 
the plot of the offspring is data who is as far as starfleet is concerned at that point the only sentient android there is because androids at that point have not been mass produced he is a a prototype who was found naked and covered in dust on a rock. That's a whole other story because his dad's an asshole. <laughs> so as far as they're concerned, he is the only sentient AI in the universe. He doesn't officially belong to Starfleet because there was a whole other episode in season two about whether he's property or a person. He had to go to court and have a really humiliating court battle where it was finally decreed that he was a person and had rights. So in this episode, he has decided that he has this right as a sentient individual, he wants to start a family and he has created another android who he considers to be his child. Bob, this is Jordy LaForge. Purpose for exterior drapings, father. It is an accepted custom that we wear clothing. Data, they called you father. Yes, Wesley. Lal is my child. Interestingly, he lets his child, Lal, choose their gender, and Lal decides to be a girl. So he has a daughter called Lal. The main thrust of the episode is that there is then an ethical problem in that some of Starfleet's higher-ups believe that Lal should be taken to be studied. The space family believe that Lal should be with her father. It's all about sort of artificial intelligence Rights. Are we talking about breaking up a family? Isn't that rather a sentimental attitude about androids? There's only one thing at stake as well in this thing, and that's Lull's well-being. Because, as I say, there's no big storyline with, with like a, a shootout or a planet that's about to go boom. The only thing at stake is whether Lull's going to be okay, and they lose. Lull suffered complete neural system failure at 1,300 hours. I have deactivated the unit. The crew is saddened by your loss, Mr. Data. It's heartbreaking. It's a really sad ending because she um, breaks her programming. A big point of Data is that, well, he says that he doesn't feel emotions. <laughs> what probably is the case is that he does feel emotions, but not in a way that is suitably human for him to be able to think that they count. Wow. Able to correct the system failure. I know. You must say goodbye now. I feel. What do you feel, Mom? I love you, Father. Well, it's quite a sad start to your perfect nighting. So here's a box of tissues. And that leads us into something a little bit more lighthearted at seven o'clock, and it's Shits Creek. Yay! So if any of our listeners have never seen this programme before, can you just sum it up? What is it about? It is a fish-out-of-water comedy about a wealthy family of four, two sort of boomer parents and two adult children in their late 20s, early 30s, who were incredibly rich New Yorkers who lose all of their money to a big scam and have to go out and live in the sticks in the one thing that they've got left, which is a town that the dad bought for the son in like rural Canada that he bought for, for him because it's got a silly name. The name of the town is Shits Creek. That's why he <laughs> bought it, because he thought it was funny. They have to live in a motel, in a horrible motel in the middle of nowhere and they very slowly become a part of the community and they start fitting in and the two children fall in love and they make friends and they they discover that life is actually better when you've got no money and you live in a little tiny rural town. You know, Moira, when you said you needed a few pieces of furniture from the motel to round out the set for Cabaret, I didn't think you'd be robbing us blind. According to Mrs. Rose, our motel is the only place sad enough to pass for a pre-war Berlin brothel. The episode you've chosen is called The Hike. Why have you chosen that one? Oh, because it's so lovely. (laughs) (laughs) So David's story is probably the most earned love story because he 
he needs to have a lot of growth. He's probably the the most closed off character to begin with. And he has a lot of bad luck in love. And a lot of that happens in the first few series. He has dalliances with people that doesn't work out and then it affects their friendship. He gets really badly screwed over. He's shown as being in, in a, at least two toxic, manipulative relationships where he is being manipulated and at least emotionally abused. And then he meets a man who he assumes to be straight called Patrick who is a business major who wants to help him run his little shop and he falls in love with Patrick. Uh, he realises on his birthday that the, the, those feelings are reciprocated. But Patrick is gay, but he's not out. So David is is confirmed as pansexual from season one. He's played by uh, the show's creator and writer, Daniel Levy, who is gay. A, he wanted to present a positive portrayal of pansexuality. Uh, he also wanted to present a positive same-sex romance in a rom-com. And the David Patrick storyline is very, very rom-com. But it does have snags along the way. Uh, that a lot of them have to do with David's hang-ups and insecurities. But also they have to do with Patrick's hang-ups and, and insecurities as somebody who's only just coming out and hasn't told a lot of the people in his life. And the hike is where all of this comes to fruition. Did we really need two backpacks? I mean, what are you keeping in these things? Well, you had a pretty long list, and we needed ice packs to keep the cheese that you requested cold. Well, did I get the ice pack one? Because this is not light. Just wonder why we couldn't have found a meadow somewhere, you know, with some men on horseback, like, trotting in the background. Okay, David, you want to turn around? Well, the app that's counting my steps isn't working, so I honestly don't know. You know what? I got up early to pack these bags for us because I thought this would be a fun thing to do together, but obviously that was a mistake. Okay, wow. So then let's keep going then. Well, no, because there's like another half an hour to go. So Ooh. I think it's probably better if we just call it now and forget about the picnic. Okay, well, we can't forget about the picnic because I will need to eat at some point soon. Shit's Creek has got a lot of love stories in it. This one's my favourite because it just feels the most earned and you just this is the one that you're yearning for, like you're rooting for David so hard by the time that you get to Patrick because he's just been screwed over so many times and hurt so many times. It's like, come on, this could be the one. And then it is the one. It's amazing. So there's three storylines in this that they managed to, to race through and they're three quite big storylines with a lot of, of emotion to them. One of them is that Johnny, the dad, has a little heart scare. We always know that he's really important to Moira, the mum, and their love is rock steady. Even though they are absolute opposites, Moira is an incredible character, played by Catherine O'Hara. Her voice is incredible, her accent. It's, what is that it's accent? no accent. And they, make, they do comment on the fact that her accent is so odd. <laughs> She's chosen this accent that is all over the place. It's Canadian, it's American, it's British, it's other things. <laughs> Stop being so literal. John, can you hear me? Can you hear me try to follow the sound of my voice? Moira, I'm gonna need your voice to take five for a minute. Thank you. It's test code for open heart surgery. You can tell me I once played a nurse on Marsh. But the big story that we've got in The Hike is literally The Hike. <laughs> so when Patrick decides to take David out on a romantic hike, even though David hates nature and exercise <laughs> and therefore complains throughout. So most of the episode is him moaning. Does David always have that pained look on his face? He always looks like he's just put his foot on a spike or something. And there's a lot of really good face acting from Daniel Levy. He looks like a cat that's trying to scare something. <laughs> and then ends with one of my favourite rom-com lines of all, which is... I didn't carry you up a mountain not to eat cheese after. Which sums up David completely to me. But then we discover the reason that they've gone up the hill is because this is where Patrick wants to propose. And even though I knew it was coming because I'd been spoiled, because by this point I was like such a fan of Shit's Creek, I was like looking up stuff online and I saw, oh, fiancés, eh? Even though I knew it was coming... I did gasp when it, just the way that they filmed it, which is just David putting out the picnic blanket for Patrick. Then he gets out this box and in the box are four gold rings. So David always wears four silver rings. He's been wearing them since right at the start. 
and he's a fidgeter as well because he's a very nervous person so he's always seen sort of playing with these thick rings and it's four golden versions of the rings that he's been wearing since season one and as he opens it up you see Patrick in the background sliding onto our knee and I did the first time I watched it I did gasp even though I knew what was coming and it's it's just so sweet and so emotional and there's also something really heartbreaking about the fact that that David's reaction is are you sure that kind of sums up everything I love and find relatable about David he is so insecure that when somebody proposes to him who he loves who he definitely wants to marry he's like are you sure that's very David and that was like that was the proper kick in the heart for me that line are you sure yeah, I, uh, I just really love it. There's tears, there's... Oh, it's lovely. Well, you've certainly cheered yourself up from the death of David's daughter. Can I get you something to eat? Would you like a snack of some kind? I'll probably get a takeaway. Any particular takeaway? So if we get a Chinese, then... Okay. Like, Chinese... Things that come with a Chinese are, like, quite nice to carry on eating later. <laughs> so we can, we we could, They can last the whole Yeah, evening. we could have filled up on Chinese and then we just sort of snack on, like, the cold ribs... <laughs> Are you sure I can't tempt you with a packet of Monster Munch? Uh, no, because they'd be prawn crackers, wouldn't they? That's true. They should do a prawn cracker version of Monster, Monster Munch. Monster Munch, yeah. Okay, so your 7.30 choice is another comedy, and this one has no title music whatsoever, and it's called This Country. Do you lot not get bored of this? I, I appreciate you've got a job to do, but does it not get a bit boring just following us to about... This Country is a mockumentary about two idiots who live in the rural Cotswolds. They're played by a brother and sister, Daisy May and Charlie Cooper. They play cousins who are also best friends and it is it is based on their life. They cast like loads of members of their family in this show and it's delightful. I really, really like it. Daisy May Cooper in particular is an amazing clown. She's one of these actors who just... They they don't have to say anything. They're just funny. Nighthawkers are basically people who stay up late on Facebook and they post just after midnight on your wall. They get a fuck-off buzz out of it, apparently. So it's Kerry's birthday, basically. She sold her the rights to her birthday to her mum for £200 several years ago, which means that her mother never has to celebrate her birthday ever again. So, yeah, she sold the rights to her birthday to her mum. Her dad's a piece of shit, and she doesn't really have any friends. So the only person who there is to care for her and to give her a nice birthday is her cousin and best friend, Curtin, who, luckily for her, is an angel. I love Curtin. He's such a, a sweet and caring man. His birthday present to her is a Screwfix catalogue, and she's delighted. Screwfix catalogue? Yep. Oh, my God, that's a new one as well. How'd you get your hands on that? Don't worry about me, care. Friends in high places. It's Gibbo, isn't it? It works at Screwfix. Yeah. He has then decided that another thing he can do to make her birthday amazing is to do one of those sheets on a footbridge over an A road that says Happy Birthday Kerry on it. So he takes her out on this very long walk out to the A road to look at her sheet. How good is that? It's great. It's really great. Happy birthday, Kerr. Thanks, Kerr. Right, now on to Steve Fair. Happy birthday, Carrie Mucklow. Look at that. So today is also, as well as Carrie's birthday, is her favourite day of the year besides her birthday because it's the Steam Fair and Carrie is obsessed with steam engines and steam tractors. Um, so she really looks forward to this every year. But they can't get back from the A road because in an earlier scene, Curtin's really annoyed the bus driver, the one bus driver in the area, by pretending he wants to catch the bus and then walking off. So the bus won't stop for them. So they are stuck in the middle of nowhere. Their only other friend, really, is the local vicar, and he can't come and help them because he's doing a wedding. Hi, vicar, it's Curtin. Yeah, good. Uh, Just a little favour. Do you reckon you could pick us up, please? What's he saying? What's he saying? What wedding? Oh. Can't, can't, can't you nip out 15 minutes and then go back? Yeah, I know, yeah, but you're the vicar. Surely you can do what you want. And it's your church, so they've got to wait for you anyway. Oh, fine, fine. Do you know what? Just do one, vicar. So they have to walk through the woods 
so then the the show becomes about sort of like local folklore and it's something that I really like which is that sort of rural gothic it's not quite sort of midsummer <laughs> the levels of rural gothic but like in these little communities you do always have folklore you do also have like oh the ghost you've got to watch out for for the ghost who lives in the woods in this case it's the fox twins my theory is that some dirty bastard shagged the fox and that fox ended up giving birth to some sort of fucked up man fox twins um, there's actually only one dirty bastard I know around here that would shag a fox, and that's Len. I never done it with a fox. We never actually see the fox twins, but we do. We never see the fox twins, but we do see a ghost. We see a ghost, do we? We see... Yeah, did you not see the ghost? No. The ghost in the... <laughs> the man in the red coat is a ghost. Oh, is he a ghost? I just thought he's he was a ghost. guy. No. Oh. Well, it's it's strongly suggested that he's a ghost. So So while you've got this episode that's making a lot of references to to like the Blair Witch Project and and stuff like that, sort of getting lost in the woods, sort of turning itself around in circles. There's rural folklore about these sort of witchy monsters that live in the woods. And they keep passing a man in a red coat who doesn't speak and is acting very strangely. But they don't ever really mention this. There's this one scene where there's a vox pop with the vicar where you can see behind him is a missing poster for the man in the red coat. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. It's strongly suggested that the man in the red coat is a ghost. There is one point where they're, they're talking about whether they want to go through this tunnel and they're talking about whether it's haunted or not. And at one point where they're both looking at the camera... The man in the red coat walks past just as they're saying it's haunted. Oh, yeah. Their version of the of the Blair Witch is it? yeah, they keep coming across the same log. Um, in this one, they keep coming across an orange tent that's got shit in the middle of it. <laughs> oh, my Jesus Christ. What? what is it? Oh, my God. What? Christ what? alive. It's just a great big dump in the middle of a tent. But Curtin does make it good, and he does make it the best birthday for her ever because... She, he gives her the two things that she really wanted besides seeing the scene for her, which was to get something from her dad. He fakes a card from her father and he buys her a soda stream, which is the one thing she's always wanted because, because one time her friend made tea in it. It wasn't very good, but it was interesting. <laughs> so he gives her a soda stream and lets her think that it's from Martin, the piece of shit father, and she is absolutely over the moon. And that is curtain to a tea. He is a sweet man. I knew my dad wouldn't forget my birthday. This is one of the best birthdays I've ever had, to be fair. I think Curtin almost ruined it as well. It's a really nice comfort watch for me, that. OK, Gabby, so your eight o'clock choice. We're staying with the comedy theme, and this time it's an American sitcom, and it's Superstore. So can you explain Superstore to us? Superstore is a really good work comedy about people working in a big box supermarket in, I think it's St. Louis. And one of the things I really like about it is that while a lot of American workplace comedies have the central thrust that work can be nice if you love your fellow employees if you love the people you work with superstore's main thrust is fuck ice join a union all of us are vulnerable okay and that's why we as asians need to form an alliance if one of us gets fired we all walk walk where no if we stick together then they can't fire all of us oh. right are we all in? Mm -hmm. Asian Alliance? Mm -hmm. Technically, I'm native Hawaiian, so can we say Asian slash Polynesian? Ugh, just... Sorry. I chose Tornado because it's the last episode of season two. Yes. I'm guessing it's not a, a typical episode, this. It's not a typical episode, no. And that's one of the things I like about it because occasionally Superstore does a thing where it really pulls the rug. It does what I sort of refer to as Niles' guns. In like in, in Frasier, where where you've got that episode where Nas is worried about his gums and he's worried that oh it might be psychosomatic and it means that there's something worse with me and everyone's like oh Niles that's such a Niles thing to think you're so you're so over the top Niles you're so silly and then it turns out that Nas was right and he's about to have a heart attack. 
and the rug gets pulled and you're like, oh shit, this isn't cosy. This isn't us laughing at somebody who's always panicking about his health. This is us genuinely being scared for somebody who we really care for. And two episodes of Superstore really do that. One of them is um, the last episode of season four, which I won't spoil if you want to watch it. It's amazing. And one of them is Tornado. So the fact that they haven't had a proper tornado drill has been seeded throughout season two. It's oh, right. like a it's like a running joke that keeps coming up. But it's it sets up all these sitcom tropes that's been done all season. So it's sort of it, this comes at the end of a another quite a big episode where Cheyenne gets married and we find out that Glenn the boss has to fire six employees. Yeah, I have a question about the layoffs. Yeah. yeah. Whoa, wait, wait, there's layoffs? When did this happen? We found out at Cheyenne's wedding. So when are your testicles going to drop so you'll tell us? Follow-up question. Why wasn't I invited to your wedding? We were keeping it small. It was nice, though. Thanks. Who are you? Alicia. I started last week. Oh. Well, I want you to just tell everybody who's getting laid off. Yeah. I don't know. But, but I have until the end of the day to decide. So, in the meantime, um, a few words about firework safety. No one cares about firework safety. Exactly. The first half of the episode is all sitcom things about, oh, how's Glenn going to choose which six people that they have to fire and also Jonah had at the end of the wedding who's got a massive crush on Amy had accidentally called Amy sexy while he was like giving her a pep talk so he's trying to make out that sexy is just a, a word that you use all the time <laughs> that isn't loaded at all so he's like constantly trying to to sort of put the word sexy into like ordinary conversations. My husband's out of work and I just got this job. I can't afford to lose it. Oh, I'm sure you'll be fine. You seem smart and dependable and sexy and, and you're a hard worker. What'd you call me? Dependable? I think asking for everybody's input is, is an interesting and noble and Sexy idea, but it's a mistake. Attention shoppers, if you are the owner of a four-door beige sexy cabriolet, your lights are on. That, again, is a beige sexy cabriolet. And it, it is really funny. So you think that those are going to be the two storylines. The main storyline being, oh, Glenn's got to fire six people. Who's he going to fire? How's he going to choose it? He keeps putting it off because Glenn's really sweet and he doesn't want to do it, doesn't want to upset people. And then the tornado warning goes off. And you're thinking, oh, right, well, this is... So the, the people who've just had the awkward conversations in the first act now have to be stuck together while a tornado passes over them and um, they'll, they'll be locked in together and they'll have to work it out. And they do sort of start that off. So Jonah and Amy end up sort of stuck together. Dina and Garrett, who have got a sort of very awkward conversation going on about th they're having sex, but because they're both emotional cripples, they're both claiming that there's no emotional attachment to it. Glenn sort of trapped in with Marcus, who he'd just fired in the sort of tornado shelter say so like oh here we go everyone's gonna have like an awkward conversation it's gonna be very funny and then the tornado hits them it's really surprising it's i was legitimately yes. really shocked because the violence of of the tornado when it hits is shocking and it's terrifying and, and when you live in like drizzly island like i do you're not used to weather being like that and obviously in the midwest it is stuff that happens. I like that. Um, I think that oh shit is the only thing that Brett ever says. There's a sort of elderly Asian man called Brett who the whole point of him is he's very cool and he's very stoic and he never says a word. And um, there's a sort of running gag throughout that episode that he's still collecting trolleys as the weather gets worse and worse and worse. <laughs> does he survive? Because he's not there at the end. I'm really worried about Brett. He does. He makes it oh, through alive, but you think that he doesn't for like three episodes. Oh, really? <laughs> um, yeah, everyone assumes that he's dead for ages. And that, so um, Dina ends up with PTSD, quite bad PTSD as a result of it, um, right. partially because she, she believed that Brett had died on her watch. So when I sort of looked back at it, it was building up quite gradually. But I think it's because you sort of you're in the sitcom mindset that, oh, it's going to build up. Oh, but it'll be OK. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And then it's just it's not fine. <laughs> Dude, uh, you speak English. Please. 
<laughs> There's something about the violence of it that that is upsetting. They're genuinely really scared, and they're scared. They're not sitcom scared. They're they're properly scared. Matteo leaves a message for Jeff, who he had because Matteo is undocumented and had lied to this guy called Jeff, saying that he didn't love him because otherwise this guy Jeff was going to find out that he was undocumented and he works in management and he was going to have to face a choice of either shopping him to ICE or getting fired. So he'd lied to Jeff and told him he didn't love him and broken Jeff's heart. So Matteo leaves a a very sad message for Jeff saying that he does love him because Matteo thinks that he's going to die unloved and alone. And Jonah and Amy kiss. (laughs) That's a proper um, sitcom trope because they think that they're going to die. Uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of sitcomy in that it's it's pushing people together, but it sort of really pushes that boundary and and shows us what these characters who we've come to really care about over two series how they'd react if they they genuinely thought they were going to die. I love you, Dad. I love you, but I didn't want to die without letting you know how I feel. And you use the word extensively too much, but I didn't want to die without telling you that. Okay, so we've reached end of part one of Perfect Night In. Have you got a favourite advert we can play at this point? Yes, the Milky Way advert with the red car and the blue car that had a race. I like it for a bunch of reasons. It's genuinely really well animated. It's got a really banging tune. And unlike a lot of things from the 80s, it's not racist. Okay, and welcome back to Perfect Night In Part 2, and it's 8.30, and Gabby, what's your next choice? My next choice is the episode 5678 from iZombie. Okay, can you explain to anybody who hasn't seen this programme what iZombie is? iZombie is an incredibly high-concept show that I am obsessed with. So, the exposition is, Liv Moore is a zombie. She was one of the first people to be zombified at a pool party due to a combination of an energy drink and a party drug. Basically, when those two things come together, it creates zombieism and zombieism uh, then gets passed on through scratches and bites. So zombies can be just like people. They can pass as normal human beings. They do need brains, human brains, every few days, or they go what they call full Romero. So if they don't (laughs) eat some brains, they become mindless and violent and just like a George Romero zombie with bits falling off them. And they can't turn back. Once you've gone full Romero, you can't go back. So you need to eat every few days or else you're done for so she was a student doctor she drops out Uh, she gets a job as the police mortuary's assistant so her plan is while she's doing autopsies she sneaks a bit of brain (laughs) um, because these people are already dead so she can't hurt them Uh, they're not going to miss a little slice of brain as she's finding out who murdered them when a zombie eats a person's brain they take on like a little bit of their personality And they also can get some of their last memories if they're triggered in a certain way by doing a certain movement or hearing a certain phrase that the living person had heard that will then trigger off that memory. And she solves murders because she can see what the uh, the victim saw. Yeah. That's it. That's that's the plan. Uh, so for the first two series, it's that. It's her solving mysteries with Clyde Babineau, who is a police detective. She tells him that she's a psychic. They end up working together. So Ravi, her boss and her friend, knows about this from very early on and he sort of covers for her. And so the first series would have that. They'd have a kind of a reset. So it would be like a crime of the week thing. She'd eat a bit of brain. She'd take on a little bit of that person's personality. It's, but it's a comedy drama. So it's a lot like Buffy in that it's got like a monster of the week, but it's also got an arc. And it's a comedy drama about a bunch of friends. I've been saving this up for a while. So 
that girl was poisoned. As was that guy with cyanide. It's very sad. Cyanide acts fast. Would have killed them in under a minute. Uh, they were healthy otherwise. Quite fair, actually. Gulliver Marlowe and Nancy Duvall were dance partners. They were about to compete for a spot on the show Dance of a Lifetime. The prize? Two tickets out of Seattle. Ooh, high stakes. And according to the woman who runs the dance studio where they all practice, Nancy and Gulliver were the team to beat. With five remaining couples in a the competition, there are at least ten people with strong motives for wanting these two dead. So, which brain do I eat? Oh, uh, eeny, meeny, miny, mine. I can blindfold you, spin you around. By this point, we're near the end of the Grand Arc. Basically, everyone knows about zombieism. There's been like a big zombie catastrophe in Seattle. Seattle's been walled up. So Seattle is where all the zombies are. They sort of bring in a lot of sort of Trump analogies. The zombies have got like this militarised police. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> but also the, there's like a lot of anti-zombie violence as well. Seattle's become like this place where terminally ill children will be sent secretly so that they can be zombified so that they don't die. Wow. Yeah, I really like this show. It's incredibly high concept. It's a satirical zombie dystopian but not apocalyptic science fiction. And why have you chosen this particular episode? What is it about this one? I particularly love this one because it took them ages. Uh, it's, whoever was making iZombie took a very long time to work out that Rahul Kohli is hot. Tell me you solved the case. Not yet. I'm looking into this freak of nature act from Liv's vision. In the meantime, Tina's phone would be helpful. There's no way I can do this. I don't have the time. I don't have the skill. You don't need skills or time. You're Robbie Chakrabarty and you're amazing. So its storyline is about a salsa dancing competition. They're trying to find out who killed these two salsa dancers. Liv eats both of their brains, so she becomes the really needy female partner first and then she becomes like this really positive, proactive, very camp male partner, secondly, who becomes the person who Ravi really needs to hear. So they need to teach Ravi how to dance, basically. And it's, it's a joyful episode that is full of friendship and is full of, of teaching an awkward man how to dance. And I just, I just really like it that in amongst this misery, they're still just having, like, Scooby-Doo fun. <laughs> Together, back and together. Front and together, back and together. I'm a really bad frame. You know, it might be easier if he counts. It's one, two, three, five, six, seven. And it's also you hold the 48. What do you mean, hold them? Oh, it's more like you drop them. I don't know what either of those mean. Robert, just watch. I just really enjoy it. I always describe it as a as, um, Buffy for people in their 30s. Again, it's got that friendship group that I really, really like. And yeah, there's sort of the, the, sort of the slightly more grown-up Scooby gang. Now, Gabby, your 9.30 choice actually has some theme music. Okay, so Gabby, you've chosen Loki and you've chosen the third episode. Can you can you just give a quick overview for those who haven't seen it, what Loki's all about? Yes. So once upon a time, there was an alien asshole who everyone assumed was a Norse god and he kept invading Earth and he had a redemption arc and then he died. But then in the Avengers Endgame, they had to go back to his initial invasion of the Earth and that version of him escaped through time, which he wasn't supposed to do. And he was caught by a bunch of bureaucrats who run time, who catch anybody who's doing what they're not supposed to do in their timeline and they delete them. It's a beautiful show. It's my favourite show of the year. I really, really like it. It's gorgeous. It's it's very um, Gilliam-y, the whole look of it. And uh, yeah, so Loki is is the Loki from the first Avengers movie. Um, so he is still a little bit of a bastard, but basically in episode one, he's had this 
sort of speed run through his redemption arc. So Loki Prime, let's call him, the Loki who dies in um, in Avengers Infinity War, gets this wonderful um, redemption arc where he um, makes up for all the horrible things that he's done and he becomes a nice guy. Because a lot of the point of Loki is there's no such thing as a good person or an evil person. It's about the choices that we make. So in in the first episode, he's made to watch all of the other Avengers movies that he's in <laughs> to, to get to get up to speed with his own redemption arc. And it's like, well, that sucked. <laughs> Horrible things happen to me and everybody who I love dies and then I die. Boo-hoo. But then he meets a variant of himself who's also being chased around because she's not she, isn't the Loki that she's supposed to be because she's a she. He meets up with her, and in this episode, uh, Lamentis, it's it's a really wonderful sort of character study where uh, somebody is is basically having therapy by talking to himself on a train that's also at the end of the world. So, on the subject of love, is there a lucky bow waiting for you at the end of this crusade? Yeah, there is actually. Oh. Managed to maintain quite a serious long-distance relationship with a postman whilst running across time from one apocalypse to another. And with charm like that, who could resist you? Well, people are quite willing in the face of certain doom. I'm sure we are. But what you get is this wonderful sort of combination of, of Doctor Who, Snowpiercer, gets a bit um, Blade Runnery towards the end. They're sort of running through this sort of neon nightmare nightclub as everything explodes. I also love that it's it's an incredibly British show for something that's American. So almost everyone in it is British. The writer of this episode is British. I think the director of the sh- of the whole sort of series is a British woman. There's a lot of female British talent with comedy pedigrees. The the music, that wonderful music that you played by a British woman. I get kind of like that, um, you know, the Indian dad character from, <laughs> from Goodness Gracious Me when I'm talking about she's British, British, British. She's a British woman from comedy. She's a British woman from comedy. The woman who plays Sylvie is a, a British woman with the, a comedy background. Obviously, Tom Hiddleston is a British man with a comedy background. So, yeah, I'm like, I'm claiming this one. <laughs> And it's, it's very British. It's got the, the wonderful line, I can't sit backwards on trains, yes. which <laughs> I am absolutely positive that that is the most British line that has ever been uttered in an American TV show. How about you? You're a prince. Must have been would-be princesses. Or perhaps another prince. A bit of both. I suspect the same as you. But nothing ever... Real. We're going to get onto the bye thing. Um, so Loki is the first protagonist that they've had in the MCU who has come out and said specifically that they are not heterosexual. So Loki comes out as bisexual in this episode. Admittedly, he doesn't say the word bisexual, but it still counts. <laughs> so I'm bi. I get very annoyed with the way that bisexual people can be depicted in TV and even things like Orange is the New Black, which has got a bisexual protagonist throughout almost every series that went on for. It was shown as being, oh, I'm co- I'm confused. Oh, do I like men? Do I like women? Oh, I'm straight now. Oh, no, I'm, I'm gay now. Oh, I don't know. All I know is that I'm very, very sexy about it. Uh, <laughs> whereas that's that's not what it is. <laughs> so I liked, I, I did really like the really sort of the casual way that he went, yeah, I've, I've, I'm into I'm into all the genders. So what? We're on chain. Let's get drunk and flirt basically that whole uh, moon has got by lighting uh, which i get excited about by lighting because the by flag palette is beautiful for lighting it's it's pink purple and blue which is a, a gorgeous palette and often when they're showing a bisexual character and they're sort of coding a character as bi they'll be uh, sort of presented in those colors yeah i like i mean the, the lighting in loki just generally is oh chef's kiss i mean aesthetically it's an amazing show uh, but i i appreciated that on the bi train ride of bisexuality they gave him like a load of bi lighting and you had the beautiful you had the beautiful drinking song in norwegian as well which is a really nice sort of 
moments. It's a nice, it's a breather within a breather. So the Lamentus feels like a breather episode, even though it's full of action. And just the drinking song just feels like a moment where we can relax and we can we can see both Loki and Sylvie having fun. He storms far the fjell, alene. Over is free time at Prem. He at the Hagen Star It's a just a lovely little moment. Before we get on to your next choice, Gabby, can I get you something to drink? Oh yeah, I'll have a cider, thank you. Any particular kind? Um, I quite like the pink ciders. You know, you get the pink ciders these days. They're a little bit sweeter. Right. Well, I haven't got any of that, so you're going to have a strong bow. Sorry. All right. That's fine. That'll do me. I'm really easy to please. This is strength. This is strong bow. And when you draw a strong bow, you can really taste the strength. The strength. All the strength of the great draft ciders that Strongbow delivers to you now. Strong as your thirst is Bulmer's Strongbow. Okay, so Gabby, your 10.30 choice is Castlevania. Yes. Now, Castlevania to me is a computer game that I vaguely remember playing in the 1980s, but this is a whole new kettle of fish. What the hell was going on with this? Oh, my God. This is another episode that I put in because I love the sheer balls of it. So Castlevania in general is just absolute chaos. And I love it. I love the chaos of it. What is it about? Can you sum it up? Oh, sure. So Castlevania is about vampires and humans. So Dracula declared war on humanity because he was sad about his dead wife. Trevor Belmont, who is a demon hunter, teamed up with a magician called Cypher and uh, Dracula's half-vampire son, Alucard, to fight off Dracula's horde. Meanwhile, Dracula had two human friends in his court called Hector and Isaac. They had a falling out in season two. Hector got captured by a vampire woman called Carmilla um, and Isaac was saved by Dracula just before Dracula died um, and is now creating an army and coming back to um, venge Dracula by killing Hector. Right. So Trevor and Cypher are now sort of riding around fighting demons. Alucard is sitting in his dad's broken castle feeling really sad. Right. <laughs> and then two two humans turn up and ask him to teach him how to kill demons and and vampires and that's where we're that's pretty much where we're at by what I refer to as the fucking and fighting episode. <laughs> 25 minutes of just balls to the wall action. fucking and fighting. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's it's violence and sex. That's all it is. There's barely any dialogue in it. The cast is incredible. You've got uh, Bill Nye's in it and Jason Isaacs. um, The guy used to play Boltar on Battlestar Galactica. But nobody says a word. The best line of it of all, which is earlier on in, in series three, where Bill Nye's character is uh, this sort of time-travelling wizard who says to Jason Isaac's character that, that Trevor and Cypher only wanted to meet him because he was famous and he knows what toilet paper is, which led to Jason Isaac's amazing line. What the fuck is toilet paper? So it starts up with the town blowing up and hundreds of innocent <laughs> souls being collected to feed a demon and open up a portal to hell. That's the kickoff. Yeah. <laughs> And then we've got four different storylines going on. And it's it's the denouement of a lot of storylines. Uh, so we've got Trevor and Cypher and Saint-Germain together uh, fighting off demons outside a, a, a sort of a cursed minster where there's this portal to hell. Um, and they're trying to fight their way downwards to the basement where the portal right. is. It's got an amazing set piece. We haven't seen Cypher fly yet. And this is where we, we start to see Cypher fly. And Cypher is incredibly cool. I love her. So she, she does this amazing thing where she gets thrown into the air by a demon she whacks her head on a cross as she goes you think she's done for and then she sort of comes to while she's still 
soaring through the air after being flung by the leg. She sort of sets off this fire from her hands and is able to fly and is able to use ice to chop a demon into demon mints. It's an incredible action moment. So the other fight that we've got is with Isaac, which is another absolutely epic fight with uh, a wizard who's turned a whole city into zombie slaves. He's basically fighting what turns into a giant floating sphere of zombies. So he is fighting his way up to the top of a tower where this where this wizard is. And it's all about his willpower, overcoming the willpower of this this wicked wizard. Um, and then you've got the two, the two sex storylines, both of which are pretty problematic. <laughs> So Alucard is my other problematic superhuman bisexual prince with wonderful, beautiful flowing hair. <laughs> His bisexuality is confirmed a lot less coyly than Loki's is. His bisexuality gets confirmed by him just getting raw dogs. <laughs> yeah, not for kids. <laughs> he still doesn't say bisexual, to be fair. <laughs> no, no neither. Um, and he gets no bylighting no. at all. Alucard has a horrible time in Castlevania he does a lot of crying at the end of season two there's like a 90 second long scene where it's just him crying into his hair <laughs> he does some more crying into his hair in this episode there's a lot of so this is the James Callis yeah. um, character the guy who used to be yeah. Baltar uh, yeah he does a lot of weeping into his beautiful flowing locks The I think the only person who has a worse time in Castlevania is Hector who's <laughs> the other person who has sex in this episode he has such a terrible time especially in this series in this series he's beaten and humiliated and dehumanized and is gaslit including by Lenore Lenore's pretty bad at gaslighting him Uh, he's just in a place where he's been just so abused that he's grateful for being given clothes and food and she's also making him think that that this is them sort of declaring their love to each other before they escape together and he finally gets his freedom and then he's yeah he's, he's tricked into basically losing losing everything he gets a a ring put on his finger that magically enslaves him. I must admit, I had no idea what was going on, but it looked amazing. I just love its balls, basically. I just love that it just had the chutzpah to go, you know what, (laughs) we're just going to have an episode where people have sex and they fight. Okay, so your 11 o'clock choice is also an animated film, but it's a little bit more wholesome. And it's called Howl's Moving Castle, which I've never heard of before. Can you explain what Howl's Moving Castle is? Yeah, Howl's Moving Castle is possibly the opposite of Castlevania. (laughs) We've had our wasabi, and now we're going to have a little bit ginger. (laughs) Cleanse that palate. So Howl's Moving Castle is my favourite film ever. It is beautiful. It is sweet. It is wholesome. So it's based on a book by Diana Wynne-Jones, a Welsh book. It's about a young woman called Sophie who works in her parents' hat shop. She thinks she's ugly. She thinks she's not really good for much. Uh, She meets a wizard called Howl. And then she has a curse put on her by um, the Witch of the Waste, which turns her into an old woman. And she... She basically goes out into the wilderness to try to find a witch or a wizard who can help her to undo this curse. You're not working for the Witch of the Waste, are you? I would never work for that witch. She's the one who... She happens upon Howl's Moving Castle. She pretends to be his cleaner. And then there's a beautiful love story. I've been told that the Japanese uh, version is probably better than the English dub to watch, but I, I always watch the English dub. Well, you've got Christian Bale as the hero, which is, uh, which is great. After reading Howl's Moving Castle, I really wish that they could have gone with somebody doing a Welsh accent. I wish that they could have gone with maybe like a Michael Sheen doing like a nice little Valley's accent because he's supposed to be, yeah, sort of Merthyr Tidville kind of um yeah he's welsh basically this war is terrible they've bombed from the southern coast to the northern border it's only flames now i can't stand the fire and gunpowder those dopey guys have absolutely no manners my own kind attacked me today who the witch of the waste no some hag wizards who turn themselves into monsters for the king those wizards are going to regret doing that what i love about it is it's incredibly female gazy I mean, Howl is so hot, but he's also such a pillock. He's this sort of archetypical 
magic pixie dream boy he's like in any rom-com that was more sort of skewed towards the sort of the the male protagonist who's like a little bit of a schlub and he meets like this woman who's like incredible and magic and she can do all these wonderful things and he's like oh but I'm just schlubby Joe how could she possibly love me and she's like well I'm special and I love you so much and there's a special special lady out there for any ordinary guy um it's like it's that but reversed so you've got a kind of a sort of plain woman who like gets fallen in love with by this absolute hottie and he looks beautiful and his hair changes colour and his hair floats when he does magic he is like such a magic pixie dream boy but he's also an idiot (laughs) because he's really really vain you get the wonderful moment in the middle of the film where this sort of pretense of him being this really sort of cool mysterious magical guy gets completely wrecked when Sophie was cleaning up the the bathroom she put the wrong shampoo in the wrong bottle basically um and it's made his hair turn ginger and he starts weeping and wailing about it look what you've done to my hair what a pretty color it's hideous you completely ruined my magic potions in the bathroom i just organized things how nothing's ruined wrong wrong i specifically ordered you not to get carried away no i'm repulsive I can't live like this. I really like that. That is in the book as well. Um, this sort of moment that spikes this concept of him being like really mysterious and sort of untouchable. It's like, yeah, you are touchable. You're just you're just a bit of a bell. And I love that about him. I love that he's just a bit of an idiot as well. How? Tell me what's going on, please. I don't care if you're a monster. I'm just setting things up so that all of you can live a comfortable life, Sophie. With all the flowers you've got in this valley, you could easily open up a flower shop. Right? I'm sure you'd be good at it. So how did this Welsh book end up as a Japanese animated film? Oh, that's Miyazaki for you. I love Miyazaki. I mean, they're my comfort watches. I got COVID in November and it was shit. Get vaccinated, lads. Because I hadn't been vaccinated. It was a pain in the ass. I was bedridden for five days and I watched Ghibli, I watched Ghibli films because I had Netflix on the upstairs telly. I was, like, uh. <laughs> I was sleeping and working because I'd, I'd give myself work to do as well. I had deadlines. So I'd, I'd sleep and work and watch Ghibli films. And this was definitely one of them. It's just such a comfort watch. Miyazaki is, I mean, people call him the Eastern Disney. I think he's better than that. I think he's hes genuinely one of the most exciting filmmakers full stop. I mean, it's an art form that's 150 years old, and I think he's one of the most important people who's used that art form. He is, I think he's really, really amazing. Another thing I really like about Miyazaki is his, his characters are all so complicated. So they're, again, there's no real good and no... Well, everyone's got the potential to be good and nobody's really that evil. Um, again, it's about the choices that you make and The Witch of the Waste is initially sort of set up as the sort of the big bad. And then she has complexities to her and she has she has kindnesses to her and she's clever and she's witty and you do find yourself really rooting for her and she becomes an ally in the end and that's that's Miyazaki for you everyone's got the ability to be to be an ally and to have kindness if you show someone kindness then they will show you kindness in return that is a big sort of trope that that he uses that I that I really like I find it very warming Hal needs that back now. Don't look at me. I don't have it. I don't know what you're talking about. Please. Please give it back. You really wanted that badly? Yes. All right, then. You'd better take good care of it. Okay. Here, dear. Thank you. You have a big heart. Yeah, so if you've got Kitty Winks, I really recommend. Or if you don't have Kitty Winks, it's just really heartwarming. And this is how Gabby Hutchinson Crouch's Perfect Night In shapes up. It all begins at 6pm with an emotional voyage for Data and the USS Enterprise in Star Trek The Next Generation. 
This is followed at 7pm by a romantic hike up Schitt's Creek, while a mysterious tent poses problems for Kerry and Curtin in this country at 7.30. At 8pm, all hell breaks loose at the Superstore, and this is followed at 8.30 by some salsa dancing shenanigans in iZombie. At 9.30, Loki, the bisexual prince of mischief, takes a train ride to the end of the world, and that's followed by plenty of fucking and fighting in Castlevania at 10.30. The night concludes with the animated movie Howl's Moving Castle at 11, where Christian Bale plays a Welsh wizard having a bad hair day, and that's Gabby's perfect night in. I'm sure you'll all agree, it's very, very sexy got one final question for you and that is who would you choose to spend your perfect night in with oh i'm gonna be lame and say my husband i'm so sorry (laughs) does he like these programs yeah he's he's watched all of these with me including most of them recently because i wanted to re-watch a lot of them yes yes and he's a joy to watch them with (laughs) thank you so much gabby (laughs) thank you